you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. I had a couple opportunities this week uh, just to share random conversations about some of the things I'm learning in Luke. And I uh, hope you take advantage of those. They're kind of pretty natural opportunities sometimes that pop up and maybe one of you men can share. God opens a door for you to share uh, maybe some of the things you're learning in men's study or women uh, in your personal reading or on Sunday morning in Luke. Uh, let's just take advantage of those opportunities that come up just to share all the things that God is teaching us uh, and be assured he is trying to teach us. Uh, hopefully we're being receptive um, to what he is teaching us. Uh, as you turn there, I just thought it would probably be a good time to give you an update. Uh, I know many of you have been praying for us and, and so kind of want to give you an update on some of the stuff that uh, we're facing. Uh, my, my cancer and leukemia, um, the cancer surgery, I'm re- re- kind of seem to really be coming well uh, with uh, coming back from that and recovery is going well from that and um, unfortunately leukemia is active and we're trying to control it, slow it down and so we're working with Mayo Clinic to do that. Uh, the current, my current counts are really low and so don't be offended if I kind of seem a little trying to stay away or smaller groups, I don't mean to be that way uh, and it's, it's hard because that's not the way I'm wired. Um, but that's kind of what's going on there, and then um, we so appreciate your prayers for Cindy and the, the foot that's really causing some trouble with her, and so we're just so grateful. We love you all, and we're so thankful for your prayers, and in many ways, you just continue to express love to us, and so I just want to make sure we thank you for that and kind of give you a brief update on what's going on. Well, enough of that. Let's, let's get in the Word, and um, Luke chapter 4, I want to read the text, and then, and then we'll pray. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And and they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up there, up for three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, 
you went away. Let's pray. Jesus, as we've just sung, you are our treasure. Our Savior, our King, our Teacher. We want to learn. Lord, not, not just content, but God, as we've prayed from the very beginning, we, we want our heart changed. We want ears that really hear what your Spirit has to say to us, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. And God, we want to feel with what burdens your heart and what gladdens your heart. God, we want to love like you love. And we're so dependent upon your Holy Spirit to do this in our life, and so we invite you. And Lord, I know that uh, these, the week, this past week has brought many things in all of our lives, and, and some of them may be pressing on our mind even right now. And I just ask Holy Spirit that you would just give us an incredible focus, the ability to just set that all aside, all the distractions, so it would be your voice we hear. And so it could be you we praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. There's an interesting dynamic um, if you follow sports, especially now that we're in football season. You'll have a team who's playing a home game and, and they're succeeding and having progress and, and, and moving the ball up and down the field. Defense seems to be doing their job and, and the crowd's going crazy. They're loving on them. Hey, way to go. But, but have you ever noticed, even at home, when you're not playing well, out come the boo birds. It seems like at home, even home games, uh, you can get booed. The crowd can turn on you pretty quick. It's tough getting rejected at home. It's, it's tough when you have a home game and your own fans, who are supposed to be supporting you, um, instead do just the opposite. Nothing worse than a hometown rejection. Well, Jesus gets it. Uh, he understands it in a much more significant way. Let's look at the setting. There are a lot of nuggets in this text that it just seemed to emerge the more I read it, and, and I'm sure I'm not going to do it justice, but uh, let, let's look at some things. Verse 14 and 15, the setting of it all. Jesus returned to Galilee. We remember last week we talked about the temptations in the wilderness, how the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and the Spirit, we know here, he comes the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, he's praised in the synagogue for his teaching. Now, the synagogues were just traditionally gatherings of people. Now, when you get into larger areas like Capernaum, they became, oftentimes, they had their own buildings they erected for that. But oftentimes, they were just gatherings, smaller gatherings of people. In a sense, a synagogue wasn't so much a place as it was a community. That's where the people of God met. Um, but as I said, oftentimes in larger places, it also had a special building for those community gatherings. In Jesus' time, most village synagogues were probably modified rooms in uh, private homes. Oftentimes, homes also had larger roofs where they met on sometimes. And so the synagogue was probably a smaller gathering, as we read about here, the situation that happens here. Now, Jesus, we're told here, is being glorified by all. And the tense of the verb suggests it was ongoing at this point. Um, Jesus' teaching aroused general acclaim. And uh, it was a continuing response to his teaching was that he was glorified by all. He was, he was recognized as having being a teacher 
from God. Now, the hostility we're about to see in Nazareth certainly contrasts with what's happening in the synagogues elsewhere in Galilee. The whole incident we see here sets the table, it seems like, for his whole ministry as we go through Luke. And so it's kind of interesting, the setting that's going on here. And then we get this message. We're told he came to Nazareth. And the text wants us to know and remind us that's where he was brought up. That's where he was raised. As a, as a young boy, he grew up and learned to trade probably from dad. People were a little familiar with him. Now, Nazareth at this point uh, was probably about 400 people, approximately. Um, Archaeology suggests that. It tells us most likely it was quite poor. Excavation uh, have uncovered that there are no paved streets, seem to be no public services of any kind or structures or inscriptions, and there was no fine pottery, which kind of spoke to the, the probably poor conditions of Nazareth, but it's strongly believed that it was a smaller area of about 400 people at that time or less. And Jesus is reading from Isaiah at the synagogue. Now, there's some words that we could fly by here, but they're really significant and, uh, and can be con deeply convicting maybe to some of us, uh, and as was his custom. Jesus had a habit. It was part of his daily life that he went to the synagogue. We would say it's a habit of going to church. And we never read Jesus saying, boy, the rabbi was dry. I mean, we, don't, we never read of anything being, well, the worship. It just wasn't good that day. Which is fine because it's not about us anyways. Um, but it was his custom. He, he went, and it didn't matter if there was other stuff going on. I mean, it was his custom. He went to the synagogue to worship. Now, in the synagogue, there was also usually an order of service. And this potentially was probably near the end. We're not entirely sure, but the service would usually um, proceed, and then near the end, there'd be more of a general discussion among those in the synagogue. And so, as, as this order seems to play out, Jesus steps in uh, to this gathering. But it was his weekly customer. It was his weekly custom. He was a worshiper of God, and unfortunately, too many are admirers of God, and they come when it's convenient, but a worshiper comes to worship him. Now notice something else. He went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It, was a, it, it almost goes back to Ezra. If you remember, Ezra had the scroll and he had the people stand up as he read it. The sense of reverence. And the narrative begins with Jesus rising up to read. What's interesting as we go through this near the end of these, pat, these verses we're talking about, we see the crowd rising up to throw him off a cliff. And so there's, there's quite a change in the atmosphere that's taking place here. I also noticed that there's something we could overlook. He stood up and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, the scroll didn't have chapter and verse breaks. It was just whoosh, scripture. So I think Jesus knew scripture pretty well. Because we don't read there was much of a delay in him finding it. He probably went, there we go. And, uh, and he read from Isaiah. And so this text implies the Spirit of the Lord was upon him as he rose up to read this. And the narrative begins with him rising up. 
Spirit of the Lord's on him. He finds this text, specific text, without chapter, without verse. He finds it and begins to expound on it. And here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. We'll stop there. The title Christ, Messiah, Christ, derives from the verb to anoint. And the verb here alludes to Jesus being the anointed one, the Christ. In Acts 4, 25-7, Peter's sermon, Peter refers to Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one. And so we see it even here, Jesus speaking to the fact that he is the Christ, he is the anointed one. And so he goes on to say that as the Spirit of the Lord's on him, and that he's anointed, he's anointed for a reason, for a mission. It's to proclaim good news to the poor. Those who are recipients of this good news are not just economically impoverished, but certainly includes them, but all those who are marginal or excluded from human fellowship, the outcasts, we could say. Their only recourse was to look to God. Jesus states, part of my mission was, I'm coming to the poor. And I'm sent, he he has sent, as he reads it, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaim liberty. As we look at that phrase, since Luke's account of Jesus' ministry does not have him setting free literal prisoners, Obviously, he's talking metaphorically. Liberty equals meaning setting free, releasing is a word that's used a couple times. Now, captives in this sense are those who are shackled by sin and shackled by Satan. Examples, the exorcisms we're about to read mark the release of of victims from Satan's strongholds. Captives are those, again, also imprisoned by sin, and their release is primarily tied to the forgiveness of sins We read about, certainly Luke and Acts talk about often, about being forgiven and released from the power of sin. Isaiah also talks about those who are not only proclaimed liberty to captives, but there's a recovery of sight to the blind. Now, blind may refer to literally blind as they belong to a class excluded from the temple. In Old Testament, the hearers would know that blindness was attributed to sin. So in another text in Luke, Luke uses blindness metaphorically. And so as we look at this particular activity of this anointed one, we recognize that this theme, that scene, that Jesus will open eyes and bring sight to those imprisoned in darkness. To open eyes in these passages means that someone would come to salvation. They begin to see who this anointed one is, this one who comes to set them free. To open the eyes of the blind. And then we get this pronouncement that the scriptures were fulfilled that day. Now in Luke 3, 4 through 6, Isaiah 43 through 5 was cited as being fulfilled in John's ministry. But now Jesus declares the prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in his ministry and that someday has become today. As the emphasis falls on salvation that's happening now. And it recalls, is the first thing I thought of is Luke 2.11, to you is born today in the town of David a Savior who is called Christ the Lord. Now there is something really significant and easy to miss here. 
Jesus turns a comma into a period. Now, that might not seem, if you're an English teacher, your, your antenna are up. Good. Jesus cared about punctuation. Yes, he did. And, and here he turns a comma into a period, and let's look why. In the original text of Isaiah 61, in which Jesus is reading here, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of God's vengeance, and to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. But as Jesus reads it, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. There's no comma. And then he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So he does this on purpose. He stops the sentence where Isaiah continues it, puts a period, closes it, and sits down. And then says, today, this scripture's been fulfilled. Why? Why would Jesus put a period where there was a comma? The reason being is he couldn't say, today the scripture's been fulfilled if he kept reading the rest of the verse, because the rest of the verse talked about his second coming, about what would happen in the future. And so he puts a period where a comma is, because today he has fulfilled that scripture. And there's going to come another day, there's going to be another period. In the meantime, we live in a comma, if I could use punctuation as uh, the times we live. But in this particular day, he put a period because that's what he was fulfilling. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled. I just think this is an amazing moment. I don't know about you, but think about what his hearers, his hearers were inclined to grab a hold of anybody who said, the Messiah's here. They've been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for a prophetic voice. John comes on the scene. Now their antenna's up. Oh, something's happening. And, and then Jesus comes, and he's reading the scroll. And he talks about him being the fulfillment. And it seems just from what the text says, he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. I think maybe one of the reasons they, their eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him as he stopped the verse, potentially. But then he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Think about hundreds of years they've been waiting for a voice. Jesus comes and says, hey, that prophetic passage about the Messiah, the anointed one, that's me. Think, think about it. If somebody came here and you'd been waiting hundreds of years. And he came up here and read this and closed it and said, that's me. You too would go, whoa. 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 Now their initial reaction, we read, they said, is this not... Well, first of all, it says they spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then another thought jumps in. And they said... Isn't this Joseph's son? So you can, I mean, Luke's given us an opportunity to almost look into the minds of those who were there. Wow, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's boy? So it's pretty cool that Luke would give us such detail because we can kind of put ourselves here and kind of get the wrestling match a little bit about what they're going through. And so Jesus also, by the way, 
emphasizes Scripture. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled. In other words, this divine authority, this divine prophetic voice, Jesus saying, I'm the fulfillment of the plan. Based on the authority of Scripture. God's plan doesn't match the plan the audience has in mind, that's for sure. But it's the divine authority of Scripture that Jesus stands on. That same Scripture, by the way, that he just smacked down the enemy with. He continues to stand on the authority and use the authority of Scripture. Now their reaction, his initial words, again brought approval, maybe excited them with a little wonder. Again, shows the power and authority of his teaching. We're going to see this all through Luke. People were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at the authority in which he taught. I mean, when Jesus teaches, people hear. When E.F. Hutton speaks, right, people listen. When Jesus spoke, boom, whoa. There's something about this man, something about his teaching, the authority that came from it, amazing. And so this is kind of what we're going to find through Luke as well. Then they ask again, this is not Joseph's son. Question should be taken maybe as a surprise. And I think maybe it's even a little more than that as we see some of the things that happen here after this. They point out he's a local boy, and maybe the idea that they could get special favors from the hometown boy. See verse 23. This is why I say that. And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. In other words, we want a little of this anointing you got, or whoever you are, you're from here, so we should get some perks at least. And another reason I say that is because Jesus says, physician, heal yourself, this proverb. Now notice the tense. You will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now context determines meaning. It most likely means that healing should be given at home. I mean, if you're going to be healing in Capernaum, at least let's start at home, Jesus. And Jesus makes it pretty clear. He says, Wait, well, all well and good, but a prophet's not even an honor in his hometown. But they're saying, listen, if one is to benefit others, you should at least give the same benefits to us. But Jesus says, you will quote. And so Jesus isn't talking about this very moment. He said, there's going to come a time when you're going to see all these miracles in Capernaum, and you will quote at that time. What about us? What about your hometown? I mean, physician, heal yourself. Heal those who are from your hometown. And so Jesus is anticipating with prophetic insight his hometown's bitterness when they learn of his mighty works in Capernaum and refers to the future, not, these pre not the previous events. Well, then there's the pro pronouncement that the prophets are unwelcome. He goes on to say... What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet's acceptable in his hometown. Even more, the prophet isn't accepted in his hometown. Jesus. And so that's amazing when you think about it, that he was rejected at home. He got booze, if I may, at home. Now, I find it interesting how he responds after this. Like, no prophet's acceptable in his own town, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows of Israel in the days of Elijah. Wait a minute. We're not talking about widows in Elijah. 
uh, we're talking about some miracles that I wish you would do here in your hometown. And, and, and what are you talking about, you being the anointed one? And what's Elijah got to do with this? What are you bringing him in this? Well, it's a good question because he answers it. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. Now this would take their mind back to an expression of God's anger at sin. And this was a low point in Israel's history, and they knew it. And that's where Jesus takes them back. A great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Whoa, what's going on here? Jesus gives two Old Testament illustrations that will define the meaning of the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed who will receive the good news and release. You see, what Jesus came to do will also include desolate widows, unclean lepers, and Gentiles, all who Jewish people look down on. Now, using Elijah and the widow Zarephath, Jesus does something because he puts Jews and Gentiles together because those who were saved, Elijah, the widow, and her son. And this pictures what Jesus would do in bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body. Elisha and the name and the leper. I mean, he brings up again Gentiles. Now, it's not just a Gentile. There's a specific word used and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. Now notice he doesn't say healed. He intentionally uses the word cleansed, so does 2 Kings 5, in the original account we read about. It's no small thing. The reason is a Gentile could be cured of his leprosy, but according to the Jewish understanding of clean and unclean, he could never be clean. But the word specifically used is cleansed. It's one reason they got ticked. How could he be clean? What do you mean clean? He's a Gentile. He's a leper. How could he be clean? The remark is strong for two reasons. Because Jesus compares the current era to one of the least spiritual periods in Israel's history. And they knew it when he went back there. And then it suggests that Gentiles, who were severely disliked among the Jews, were more worthy of ministry perhaps than they were. Jesus is warning his audience that their reaction recalls one of the lowest points in Israel's history. And if they were receptive to God's truth, they would be welcoming what he's saying, not opposing it. In other words, they approved earlier in the text because it seemed what Jesus was saying was in general. They wanted an anointed one, they wanted the Christ, but when he got real specific that they were the ones rejecting what he was saying, then they got upset. Now, it's pretty easy to leave it here, isn't it? But let me ask you, when you approach Scripture and it speaks generally of other people, a little easier to receive, right? I mean, your wife shouldn't be angry. Your children shouldn't be angry, for goodness sakes. Other people shouldn't be angry. But when the Spirit of God says to you, what about your anger? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> let's not talk about me. That's a little, well, too specific. And it is kind of talking about, to our world, isn't it? Kind of that way? I mean, generally, sometimes the truth is palatable. 
But when it gets real specific, uh, not so much. And that's what happens here. It's generally okay at first. But then Jesus gets real specific. He brings the Gentiles into the picture. And they knew what he was saying. Obviously they knew because they get really ticked. And that's an understatement. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Not just discomfort, wrath. Well, it's one thing to feel it, but look what else they do. They rose up, they drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. Why'd they bring him there? So they could throw him down from the cliff. Now, I don't know if you've ever been ticked off of something I set up front. I don't know. But no one's ever brought me to an edge of a cliff yet. And, and can you imagine to get that upset? Think about it. To get that upset that you would respond this way. Can you have a harder heart? I mean, can you be so opposed to what God wants to do and say because it goes totally against what you think that you would rise up and do this? That's a hard heart. <laughs> but what they're mad at is the door of God's grace is going to be open to the whole world. The whole world. Now, I'm not going to get political. But I will say this. Because it's the first thing that kept coming to my mind throughout the week. The whole issue of immigration. I hear so many people getting so upset. But I've heard quite a few less who are rejoicing, saying we have an opportunity to minister and proclaim good news to the poor. Release sight. Give sight to the blind. The door of grace now can be opened to more people. I don't know, it just seems people are really angry about immigration and some of those things. And I could go on with other things. I, just, I guess I just want to challenge us. Let's make sure that what, what was on Jesus' heart is, is ours. That we care that the door of grace is open to the whole world. But the hearers weren't too excited about that. And so they bring him off the cliff. Now, on the brow of the hill of Nazareth, here's where a good uh, a map, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, it's good. Because what is really interesting to me is I got chewing on this. I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but it is true. If you come to the cliff at Nazareth and looked out, you see the Valley of Armageddon. And I wonder in that moment, with Jesus being surrounded by rage, if he didn't look out and think of the future when nations would come enraged at Jerusalem and God and wage war. And here he stood on the brow of the cliff of Nazareth looking out in the valley of Megiddo. Interesting thought. This isn't going to be the first time people try to kill Jesus as we're going to see in Acts. But we definitely see it here. Augustine once said, many love the truth when it enlightens them, but they hate the truth when it accuses them. But isn't that true here, huh? They wanted enlightenment, but when the accusations came, they didn't want nothing to do with it. Now we read Jesus here. He escapes, but passing through their midst, he went away. We don't know anything more about it. I'm not going to try to surmise what that was. All we know is that it wasn't God's plan. And, and Jesus leaves. And we'll pick up kind of what happens next week. You're going to want to make sure because it's pretty amazing what happens this next 
uh, this next text we don't have time for. But this episode, which is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, really foreshadows what will happen to him in Jerusalem at the end. And as I said, it kind of sets the table for what we're going to see in encounters throughout Luke. I thought of a lot of different things that appeal to, that uh, apply to me throughout this. You know, responding to God's truth and, and having a heart that, that receives people in the whole world, not just those I think are worthy of receiving it. And, uh, and there are just a lot of other things, having a custom of just regularly uh, having time with God, those type of things. But there's two that emerged, and I think they're certainly worthy of us to consider. One is it seems in this text God inserts a wide-angle lens towards our perspective of the world. And by that I mean we can focus so much on that narrow interests in our life that we forget that God has a bigger plan. And it seems in this we see a zoom lens become a wide-angle lens that I hope becomes our lens. That we begin to see the world that Jesus came for. The church's call is an extension of Jesus' ministry. The values reflected in his mission should be reflected in the church's outreach. God has an open door for any heart that is open. And we need to pursue all in our communities. It's interesting, it seems, and I think the elders would affirm this, that God is stretching our hearts. He's giving us a bigger vision of his kingdom. A bigger vision of what it means to reach out. It's so easy to care only about our tribe. Only about those we work with or live with or if we grew up in a certain town like Kokato. It's so easy to just care about Kokato or Dassel or where we grew up. That our, We need to be a widened lens for those transplants who come in. For those who live next door who are really, really different. And I really pray God continues to do that. In me and in our church, God seeks to insert here a wide-angle lens on our perspective of the world. And secondly, to be responsive to God, one must know what he desires and how he sees issues. Jesus is really clear here. His examples of the Gentiles tells us and told them he cares about the whole world. And if we want a desire to know what Jesus cared about, what he thinks on things, we should come to the Scriptures. We need to be responsive to God. This text speaks to what is responsive to God's Word. We see what it, does, what it looks like when you're not. When it's specific, we see what it looks like when one rejects God's truth. And Jesus' use of Scripture as authority models for us how you and I should approach the Scriptures. My opinion or anyone else's opinion in Scripture, Scripture always wins. That was Jesus' approach, the authority of Scripture. Are you responsive to God's truth? Is your heart open to all of His truth? And Scripture begs this question this morning. Are you open to what God wants to say to you? I think it's an important, important question. There's more here in this text. As I said, you're going to want to come back next week as we continue to build on those things. But I just want to challenge you with those two things. Open wide your heart. And then open wide your heart to Scripture and God's truth and be receptive to all that He has. Whatever it would be, 
whenever he speaks it, be receptive. You'll experience God's blessing and power in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word, amazing. Absolutely amazing. I appreciate how it cuts through our rationalizations. our small viewpoints and mindsets, how it cuts through our structures and our plans and our agendas. And Lord, it speaks to your truth, to your plan, to your purposes, and to your anointed one, Jesus. Might our hearts be captured by your word. Might our hearts be captured by you, Jesus so we could respond to every word that falls from heaven. That we could respond to those around us who aren't like us. Who we tend to push off to the, to the side, the outcasts of society. Give us hearts that are broken for them, like yours were. Like yours was. And Holy Spirit, would you do that in our lives? We know we can't conjure up a heart like that. But we know by your Spirit you can do that. And so we pray you would cultivate such a heart. So that in all things your plan is accomplished and your name is praised. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.